Good afternoon. I'm Claire Sorrell, and I'm president of the Friends of the Knox County Public Library. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Todd Freeberg, a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Tennessee. He has an adjunct appointment in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. He received his doctorate from Indiana University in the Department of Biology. Dr. Freeberg is interested in vocal communication with studies focused on the development function and evolution of vocal signals and signaling in songbird species. Please welcome Dr. Todd Freeberg. Dr. Freeberg is reviewing the book Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel by Carl Safina. Thank you all. Like they mentioned in the introduction, students in my lab and I, we study animal behavior and animal communication specifically. So we look at things like how individuals, in our case we typically study songbird species, uh, how they're really sensitive to their social groups. And the way they signal with one another is affected by how complex their social groups are. Um, And we've looked at things like how individuals respond to stimuli from predators. Um, So in our case, we do a lot of studies with Carolina chickadees and tufted titmice. And not so surprisingly, they're really sensitive to uh, a predator being in their presence. But it's not just that. They're also sensitive to what the predator is doing. So like a, a cat that's looking at a chickadee is a very different beast from a cat that's in the same position but looking away or potentially sleeping, right? It's a deadly predator, but depending on what the predator's behavior is really is, is uh, affecting what the prey species do. So we, we study that kind of thing as well. Okay, so I was really curious to read this book and there's a whole slew of these books that have come out in the past few years. I don't know if you've come across any. One of my favorites is, I don't want to get the title wrong because it's a really cool title. Uh, are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? by uh, Franz De Waal. He's a primatologist that does a lot of uh, writing for, for general audiences. He's a really good writer and it's a really good book. And it overlaps a lot with a lot of the themes in, in this book. Um, And so this is one of that uh, sort of suite of these new books on animal cognition. Carl Safina is the author. He is an excellent author. So if you're at all interested in the book, I highly recommend it. He is a Ph.D. He got a doctorate in ecology from Rutgers University, and he's he's got an endowed chair at uh, Stony Brook University. But he's written a lot for general science audiences, which is something I'm becoming more and more interested in uh, myself. And so I'm really sort of amazed by how, how great of a writer I think he is for conveying really complex uh, information. He's also won a number of really prestigious awards like Pew Foundation and the, uh, which, oh, it's, the, uh, it's the Genius Grant. Which one is that? Is that the MacArthur Award? Yeah. All right, so the book itself is, is broken up into four main parts. Uh, one is related to elephants, and for three of the four main parts, he actually travels to the research site where a lot of the work is undertaken that he's, he's describing. So he goes to Amboseli National Park in Kenya, and he interviews a lot of the major researchers that have been involved in 
long-term ecological research on the groups of uh, elephants that live there. Cynthia Moss is one of the main ones that he interviews. And one of the things that he notes, sort of a prevailing theme that goes throughout the book, is he's, he's talking in this book primarily about what he calls who animals rather than it animals. So when we, when we see an animal, when we see a squirrel, a cockroach, a mosquito, we think of it as an it. It's just a, it's a squirrel or a cockroach or a mosquito, right? They're sort of all interchangeable within the species. That one squirrel that you see, that one mosquito that you see, could be any mosquito, it could be any squirrel, right? What he's talking about in this book primarily are what he calls who animals. These are species where they have really complex social lives and each individual is different in really important ways. So it's not the case that you can just remove any elephant from its herd and it sort of has the same impact. If you remove the main matriline, the matriarch of the herd, that has a much greater impact on the herd than if you remove a really subordinate individual, for example. If you remove a really sort of shy individual, that has a different impact on the herd than if you remove a really bold individual. And so that kind of socially complex grouping, what he argues, leads to cases of individuals having things like an awareness of self. They know who they are relative to others in their group. In some species, it's been demonstrated that they can differentiate not just other individuals in their group, but sort of the coalitions and associations among different individuals in their group. And so if I'm going to be aggressive towards this individual, I need to take into account who else is around that might be a friend of this individual. And who else might be around is going to affect how I behave. And if this individual comes from a much stronger in the case of elephants or killer whales, a much stronger matrilineal clan than mine, there's no way I'm going to attack this individual under any condition, right? Individuals are not interchangeable. They vary a lot from one another, and their associations and relationships vary a lot from one another. So the second group that he focuses on is, again, it's another long-term ecological research project, this, this one involving wolves in Yellowstone National Park. So like elephants, these guys are in socially complex groups. Individuals vary from one another, and the specific individual matters to understanding the group. And furthermore, wolves, unlike elephants, are what are called social hunters. And so it's thought to require even more in the way of, like, intelligence or cognitive machinery to be a, an effective social hunter because you need to be able to cooperate and coordinate your movement as you're, you know, in the case of a wolf and a wolf pack that might be hunting a moose, where a single moose is much larger, much heavier, much more dangerous than a single wolf. But for a pack of wolves, if they're coordinating right and cooperating right, they can bring down this much larger prey item. Uh, and so that idea of social hunters and the importance of cooperation and coordination is really key for, for thinking about those uh, animals. Uh, in the third part of the book, he takes a sort of a divergence. The, the part is called Wines and Pet Peeves, which is a 
cool kind of play on words because a lot of his book is about communication, calls and whines and screams and things like that. Uh, and then Pat Peeves, so his gripes with the field of study that he's talking about. But it's also largely about pets. It's a lot about dogs uh, and a lot of really cool research that's been done on, on dogs. So he's pretty critical of a lot of the work, like I mentioned, that's, that's done in the field. We can talk a little bit about some of that uh, if you'd like. The final part of the book is on killer whales. And again, like wolves, like elephants, these are long-lived animals. The relationships among individuals in a group is very important to understanding not just individual behavior, but the group dynamics and behavior as a whole. These animals have really long memories, as best we can tell. Uh, like wolves, killer whales are social hunters. They cooperate and coordinate uh, when they're hunting. It's probably the case in the wolves, but it's not as clear. But in killer whales, there's a lot of evidence of cultural transmission of behavior, where the young animals that end up growing up and developing in a particular pod, they learn the behaviors of their pod from interacting with others, maybe from seeing others. Uh, And so hunting techniques and food preferences are really dependent on exactly which pod of killer whales you're talking about. Some specialize in hunting seals, some in certain kinds of fish, etc., etc. What's really important in killer whales, probably important in elephants, maybe important in wolves, is grandmothers, so post-reproductive females hanging around the group uh, is known to be really crucial to survival of individuals in killer whale pods. One of the really long-term studies that came out in the past five years, and again, I'm I'm just drawing a blank on the, the author's name, but it looked at killer whale pods and whether young survived like how long young survived over long periods of time based on whether their post-reproductive mom survived, like how long that mom survived. And basically, if the grandmother dies relatively early, the chances of a young surviving goes way down. So the probability of survival decreases uh, really considerably. Uh, If that grandmother lives for a very long period of time, the chances of the young surviving are much, much higher. Uh, And so that was one of the first studies that just really demonstrated it's a correlational study. So we don't know for sure cause and effect, but it it seems reasonable to assume that there's like something about the knowledge of that older individual in the pod that's really important to survival. One thing Safina kind of argues throughout the book is that there's, there's something special about these really socially complex groups, period, but socially complex groups that are also really long-lived. There's just a lot more pressure on those individuals to have better long-term memory, to remember individuals over longer periods of time. Uh, and so it could just be the case that if wolf lifespans are sort of compressed relative to killer whales and, and elephants, that you know, the window of time for a post-reproductive female to have an effect on the the group is so short that it's we may never see it as researchers, and uh, maybe it just doesn't have that big of an impact on them. I don't know. So again, it's this idea that 
individuals are not interchangeable in these pods. They all have very different sort of personalities and experiences. They're who animals rather than it animals. Actually, Franz de Waal uh, talks in his book of uh, really interesting and I think pretty elegant research over the past 10 years on cooperation and coordination behavior in different animal species. Um, and then play. Play has become a, a big area of study in animal behavior. Actually, uh, one of the people in my department, Gordon Burkhart, I don't know if any of you know Gordon, um, but he spent a lot of his time the past couple of decades studying play in, animal in uh, different animal species. And he has literally written the book on play. It's like the source of our understanding of play in animal uh, groups today. Safina talks a little bit about the importance of play in these kind of socially complex species as well. I do have some criticisms of the book. One of the criticisms I have of the book is that he, he, he talks a lot about studies of communication, which is what we do, uh, how different species, individuals communicate with one another, signal with one another. And he criticizes the field of study rightfully in some ways, but then really incorrectly in other ways. Like, um, So he writes early on in the book that for half a century the study of animal communication has been stalled at description. Uh, translation is where we need to go. So trying to understand what variation in signals mean to the individual's hearing or seeing or smelling those signals. And that's just flat out wrong. I mean, for decades and decades, we've been un sort of uncovering what signal variation means to the different species that use different signaling modalities. I mean, that's, that's kind of what we study. We look at how birds facing different environmental contexts or social contexts, how that influences what they produce. We study vocal communication. And more and more, we're starting to manipulate that uh, those vocal signals, playing them back to other uh, individuals in the groups that we study to see how that affects their behavior. Um, and so a lot of what he talks about is really directly linked to the kinds of things that we study. And then I mentioned earlier the notion of prey individuals paying attention to not just a predator in their environment, but what a predator is doing. That overlaps a little bit with a lot of current research in different species on whether individuals sort of know about what an in other individual might be perceiving. So the, the really obvious one is the, the one I mentioned before, right, is if a, a prey individual sees, like how many of you have backyard bird feeders, Mo most people here? So if you have the opportunity and there's a neighborhood cat that comes around, if that cat happens to be, I don't know, asleep near the feeder, or if you've got a few feeders and it's paying attention to one feeder, you might look at, are the birds coming and going to the other feeder, right? Are they aware of the perceptual space of that lethal predator in their environment? Um, Safina talks about some of the, the really cool research it's been done in primates, and I think there's at least one other taxonomic group where this sort of study has been done, where if there's a, 
if the focal animal in the study is a dominant animal and they're situated like across a table that has a barrier and the researcher puts out a piece of food that both the dominant animal and the subordinate animal can see, the dominant animal is always going to take the food and the subordinate animal is never going to try. If the subordinate animal is the focal animal and the barrier is in place in such a way that when the researcher puts the food out, only the subordinate animal can see it, the subordinate animal just waits, like doesn't do anything, kind of sits there and waits. And as soon as the dominant animal sort of loses interest or moves away a little bit, it grabs the food really quickly and will eat it. But if the food is put out in a way, again, that the dominant animal can see it, there's no way the subordinate animal will take the food item. Um, and so that's the kind of research that tells you that they're aware of what the other individual is likely seeing. Some researchers have taken that even farther into an area of, of study called uh, theory of mind research. This is a, actually a big topic in, in human cognition as well. But so it's going beyond thinking about an understanding of what another individual might perceive to an understanding of what another individual knows or thinks about. Um, and that's a little more sort of controversial in terms of the, the research and interpretation. But that's where a lot of the research is right now, for especially with primates. So the main vocal signal that we study is the chickadee call in Carolina chickadees and tufted titmice that we have around here. So it's, I can't do bird song or call imitations, but it's the chickadee-dee-dee-dee -dee -dee call that they do all the time. Uh, and most people just sort of casually observing or hearing this call, it's just, it's just a chickadee call. It just, you know, it's chickadee-dee-dee-dee. -dee. It varies a little bit, but it's all pretty much the same. If you actually spend a little bit of time listening to the birds, if you get into a situation where you're hearing lots of birds using this call, what you'll hear is an enormous amount of variation in the calls that they produce, like just the DDD part of it. Some calls don't have that. Some calls have 20 or 30 of those notes on them. There's a lot of variability. We, for a long time, have not had any idea why this call system is so variable. Um, most call systems in non-human animals are really simple. There's just not a lot of diversity or flexibility in the way individuals can communicate. But in this group of species, for whatever reason, they have this really dynamic, really flexible communication system. It's actually, that's the reason I started studying this species, is because I was intrigued as to why they have so much variation. Um, and so that kind of overlaps a bit with some of the, the work that he talks about in the book as well. So listen to chickadees and titmice the next time. They're a lot more interesting in sort of what they're communicating with one another than you, you might think. Yeah. My uh, younger brother for many years had a pet boa constrictor, and when he went off to college, it became my mother's job to keep the snake. <laughs> it got to be about four and a half, five feet long, and I was visiting one day, and uh, decided to take the snake out in the backyard. And all of a sudden, a large black crow flew into a tree and started issuing a warning mm -hmm. call. And I, I kind of understood that, but it intrigued me that it, the crow didn't leave. It didn't issue a warning and get away. But it stayed there, and six or seven other crows 
came to that tree, and they were all issuing. And they didn't stop until I took the snake back inside the house. So is that a typical behavior? Yeah, so that's, uh, that's it's called mobbing. A lot of small uh, prey species will mob potential predators in their environment. Um, so the one exception is like a, a predator that's actively hunting. Like if you spend a lot of time in the woods, occasionally you'll, you'll see a cooper's hawk or a, a sharp-shinned hawk flying really fast, low in the canopy. They're, they're pursuing, they're actively hunting uh, birds or small mammals when they do that. You never hear mobbing signals in that kind of a situation. What you tend to hear are these really high-pitched sounds that are what are called alarm calls sometimes. So that's the one exception of, of a case of a predator in their environment where they typically don't mob. What you'll see if you're walking in the woods a lot is you'll hear this mob of small songbirds, sometimes chipmunks and squirrels will participate as well, that are just shrieking. They're moving around a particular kind of central area and they're calling like crazy. Uh, and if you look and if you're lucky, some, I've seen this a few times, you'll see a barred owl or a cooper's hawk that might be sleeping. It's like it's mind, you know, it's minding its own business. It's not hurting anybody. It's just sitting there. But small prey species will then mob it. And the idea is that they're the first crow sees something that's potentially dangerous in the environment. So it's producing these really loud, really obvious signals that are easy to locate in in space. So they're easy to attract others in the environment to come to this one location. Uh, and then when there's a bunch of these individuals in the area, the typical predator, it's it's a horrible sound, right? And it's you're being bombarded by these small animals. The typical predator will leave sooner or later. Um, and there's actually been some really cool experimental studies that have shown the benefits of mobbing and the predator leaving for both the predator and the prey individual uh, in those cases. And it's curious that you found crows doing this because a lot of times it's the smaller birds that will mob crows uh, in their in their environment, especially when they're breeding because crows love to take little baby nestlings and eat them. <laughs> yeah. Hi, uh, my name is David. I had an example. I was watching a nature special on otters, river otters and uh, giant Amazonian otters, and uh, there was an example of the mobbing where this really interesting dynamic between the mother and the young is that the young really aren't in a position to be big enough or any of them really to fight off some of the predators that, predators that are after their food, such as a fox. And there was an example where it was divide and conquer, like uh, uh, defeating them through distraction, that one of the young would just run up behind the fox and just kind of wiggle around a little bit and then the mom would be able to get away with the food. But also, one of the things that you had brought up about different maternal dynamics within killer whales was also interesting. The way that the otters wean their children off is much different. They, the mother is stops feeding them much earlier and will gradually wean them off or just not give them any food at all. So mm-hmm. it was interesting that you brought that up, that the different dynamics between the maternal weaning or uh, multi-generational dynamics and how the young interact and help kind of just squirrel around to help fight off a fox and then kind yeah, of just yeah. slide off the ice into the into the river it was uh 
I just thought it was a nice example of, of one of the points that you had made. Yeah, there. Uh, thanks for that. There's this whole body of, of research on anti-predator behavior, but the kind of thing that you talk about and this notion of really sort of strategic anti-predator behavior is, is much less understood. Like if you know, in a case of a family group or something like that where there's multiple individuals that can then be producing an anti-predator response, maybe they shouldn't all do it in exactly the same way. Maybe there should be some variation. It's sort of easy to think about if you've got individuals doing different things that might be confusing or sort of disorienting to a predator, and that might be beneficial. Um, or in this case, if, if there can be sort of distraction by one individual that lets others get away more easily. Um, that's, that's a sort of neat area of study that uh, is, is, there's starting to be a little more research on this, but it's, it's pretty early still. Some of the really cool studies are, are being done in fish, uh, fish shoal and school a lot, and so they have these kinds of groups. Some of them are really stable. Some of them just sort of come together as aggregations and then split apart again. But in those cases, you can sometimes see this more sort of interesting or different kind of anti-predator strategy of, of individuals in the groups acting in different ways to sort of ward off or sort of adaptively respond to this danger in their environment. My name's Heather Middlebrooks, and I actually work at Zoo Knoxville. I'm an animal uh, interpreter. Um, doesn't mean I speak animal. It just means I can tell you a lot of stuff about our animals at the zoo. Um, one of the things that the zoo also provides is enrichment for all of our animals. It's not just about seeing that their well-being is taken care of, but we're also taking care of their mind and their brain. And so elephants, when you walk through their exhibit, you can see they're the easiest enrichment to see. They have these big, tall trees that aren't actually trees. They've been created to look like trees. They have barrels at the top of them, and lots of times they will... Um, pack those barrels with like hay and then they had little treats and things in them so the elephants are able to um, use their trunk then to start searching for the things that are in there um, and that happens with all of our animals um, our bears get frozen capri suns and we give it to them and then they have to figure out how to get into it to get their treat and that happens all the way down to the goats get pizza boxes stuffed with hay um, so there's all kinds of things. The bear exhibit has, if you look at their trees, there's little nooks that are made so that you can put and hide peanuts and things in it. So there's all these brain activities that we're actually, the keepers provide for the animals. But Einstein is an African gray parrot. They are very, very intelligent, and she can say over 80 things on command. Um, I've heard she actually can sing happy birthday as well, um, but she is amazing. I also went to the Columbus Zoo recently, and it was interesting to see their African gray parrots because they have, like, nine of them in a cage just moving around, and they don't use them for shows or anything, but they were all making different sounds of different things that they've just heard, like a mockingbird around here, but way more um, evolved. One of our young animal interpreters that just started, she was giving a talk in front of Wet, uh, Rhett, who's our scarlet macaw, and the people said, oh, does he talk? And she goes, eh, I don't think so. On cue, he goes, hello. <laughs> and she was like, okay, so he says a few things. But he wasn't trained necessarily. He just He's learned because everybody walks up, and the first thing they say is, hello. <laughs> so that's what he's, yeah, that's what he's learned. Yeah. Come see me at the zoo. Thank you so much for being oh, thank here. You. Thanks to all of you for participating. 
we are very, very grateful to the event, to the library. I wanted to mention especially that the, the zoo has brought zoo mobiles to branch libraries to encourage summer reading among our children. Thank you again. Thanks to all of you. Thank, Thank you. you, Dr. Freeberg. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.